welcome to another Safety Talks. We're teaming up once again with the 1% Safer team to bring you some more phenomenal speakers. Have you checked out our 1% Safer live and direct conference yet happening April the 28th, 2021? If not, click on the registration link below and please sign up and join us at the conference. Are you interested in finding out what is 1% Safer movement all about? Navigate to 1percentsafer.com and you can find out more information about our book and how to share your 1% Safer idea with us. Now, today on the show, we've got some great speakers joining us. We have Paul Hendry, who is the Global Vice President of Health, Safety and Environment, People and Places Solutions of Jacobs. We have Funmi Adabola who is the founder of Society of Women in Safety, Health and Environment Africa and the CEO of CTS Globe. And Malcolm Staves, who is the Corporate Health and Safety Director at L'Oreal. Now let's dive into the discussion. So thank you so much everybody for joining me today. It's really awesome to have you all here. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you. So I wanted to kick this off by asking, what are you involved in today that's your passion project? So why don't I throw it to you, Fumi, to kick it off? Amazing. I'd love to. Um, right. I am involved in so many things, actually, and um, but I'll try and streamline it uh, just for the benefit of time. And probably in two parts, if I may, um, one as a consultant, um, I do consult at the moment, but predominantly outside of the United Kingdom. So I look at Africa as a whole. Um, so I look after the financial and insurance sector. I work with the government actually in, in um, Nigeria. Um, and I, I'm into policy making, I, I advise. Um, and outside of that work, um, I also, I'm an advocate, should I say, a very, I'm on a crusade, Osh crusade, actually, I must put it. And um, I'm doing that through a platform that I founded and it's called um, SOCHI. And that's an abbreviation for Society of Women in Safety, Health and Environment Africa. And so essentially using that medium to um, champion gender equality in the profession um, and outside of the profession, but primarily also just putting out there that, you know, um, the OSH agenda and pushing it with women, really. So that's kind of like, in a nutshell, um, the key things that I'm working on at the moment. And Paul, what about you? What are you up to these days? There's multiple things that I've got on the go, you know, heading up um, the health and safety environment section of uh, Jacobs, PMPS, there's 36,000 people there. So there's many different um, things I'm pushing, like whether it's control contractors, whether it's stuff we do internally, really pushing integrated risk, how we can front load our effort in HSE to make it much easier for the people who are constructing. Um, looking at kind of that. Um, also looking closely at, and probably a lot of your listeners and viewers will, will be thinking of this as well, is this whole future of work. Since we transitioned to during this pandemic, where I would say 80% of our people are working from home, like all other organizations, we've seen that as a, uh, as a opportunity to drive flexible working 
And we've since then, we've kind of rationalised our footprint. And effectively, we're going to need to learn how to work from home more effectively and more permanently. And that's a, that's a, that's a big change. A lot. It's a change in mindset. So I think there's, there's, when we talk about you know, psychology, psychology of change, there's a, there's a lot we need to kind of work on in the organisation for that. And then I would say um, a lot of my time is spent just now driving um, One Million Lives, which is um, a tool and a campaign that, that we created, started working on it 18 months ago, which is now starting to kind of um, gain traction. And, and I think at time of speaking, we're just under 10,000 check-ins um, across the globe. But I think now we're at that tipping point where I think is really just going to explode. So those are the kind of things that, that keeps me busy and out of trouble. And Malcolm, what is you and your team are doing? Because I know you also are up to a lot of stuff. Yeah, but you, you know, I, I never follow the script, Tamara. So the first thing I, I'm going to say is that I'm one of, I'm one of the 10,000 people that have uh, filled in uh, 1 million lives. And it's an amazing tool that um, that Paul and his team have put out there, that Jacobs have put out there. So I'm, I promote it quite a lot on LinkedIn whenever I see it. So anybody that's out there is going to be listening to this, it's worth looking at. From my point of view, it, it gave you a bit of a check of, uh, you know, where you are from a, I'm going to call it from a mental health strength point of view. It's not the expression that, that, that maybe Paul would use. And it allows you to identify where there's potentially weaknesses or opportunities for improvement to build up your own personal resilience. So I just want to put that out there because I think it's a fantastic thing and anybody that's not looked at it, they should uh, they should do. Um, within L'Oreal, so, uh, well, got a lot of things, a little bit uh, like the above, like Paul was saying, the traditional um, stuff, working on risk management, the culture, driving safety, Beyond the gates of L'Oreal is what we do. We've got a program called Safe at Work, Safe at Home, whereby it's all about spreading our culture into our families, into local communities, and also into other companies. Um, for that, we have a um, we have a global partnership with a, with ROSPA, which is the Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents, and that's working extremely well. Um, also, internally at the moment, we're very preoccupied with um, with the future of work, uh, like like Jacobs. Um, but it's a little bit maybe, I don't know, it's slightly easy maybe for L'Oreal because we already added people working from home prior to the pandemic, so we had a lot of the processes in place. What what happened with COVID is we just accelerated. Lots of work outside as well. There's two main activities where I'm working at the moment outside of work. One is working in the realm of human capital, even though it's a very cold word, it's basically people, but the idea of putting occupational health and safety into the center of that, because in the sustainability arena at the moment where human capital comes under very often, um, occupational health and safety doesn't really exist. Um, one of the reasons being it's not classified as being material because if we do our jobs right, we take away accidents, we take away death, so we, re we remove materiality. So the financial people that started this don't like it. And as a result, sustainability is very often now associated with environment. Whereas from our point of view, and I know from me and Paul, we all agree on this, there's also the aspect of people sustainability. Mm -hmm. so. And the other, the other big thing is, which uh, I'm linked in with FundMe, is uh, on um, the Global Coalition of Women in Safety Networks, um, trying to bring um, 
these networks, influences in the space of women in safety together to try and make a difference. Because here within L'Oreal, we have our own women in safety network. And we, we believe that through, um, by introducing more diversity and inclusion, we end up with better collaboration, better, better teamwork, more empathy, more listening skills, et cetera. But that results in better decision-making and quite simply in what we do, better decision-making means we save lives when we reduce accidents and, and illnesses. So it just makes sense. So that's me in a nutshell. And I've probably taken up a lot of time already. Is that the end of the podcast now? Yeah, almost, almost. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, you know, you've all kind of um, threaded through in what you're working on a similar pattern. And that is looking at the future of work although maybe doing it in slightly different ways, I think it, there's a pattern there. And so I wanted to dig deeper into that. I wanted to pick up on two themes that came here. I am also part of the One Million Lives, and I found it really incredible to do some self-reflection on what was going on. And, and I see that as um, us bringing that into the workplace. So I wanted to, to open that up a little bit more about how did it, your heads turn towards this need and making it grow and blossom? Because it hasn't always been this way in the workforce. Okay, um, look, we've been talking about mental health um, in Jacob since 2015 probably you know I know a lot of organizations are doing a lot of great stuff now um, and there's a lot of external organizations doing a lot of great stuff then and now but we started looking at it in earnest in 2015 and we got a lot of great traction as an example our CEO is is a positive mental health champion he's been through the same four-hour training as like a graduate etc so having that support from from the c-suite has been incredible and it's been a real accelerant in this program. So, you know, maybe five five years running this mental health champion program where we educate people, we talk about eliminating the stigma and those people were then to signpost people to like the employee assistance program. That was predominantly their job, right? And, and they do an amazing job. And our culture has changed because of this, actually. But I always felt that it was still quite reactive. So I'd been working with a psychologist out of Australia called um, uh, Peter Slocum, and she's a dear friend of mine. And, and we, had this, we had this idea to, to try and put mental health in people's hands and try and get them to take a bit of ownership around kind of their own mental health and perhaps identify what they needed to change before they had a mental health issue. So that's really how, how, it, came, how it came to be. Um, she worked to know the kind of, clinical and technical aspects of it and, and, and I, I try to kind of do the do the kind of selling of it and the, the high the high level but she dealt with like the question set and if you answer this how would that relate to in a recommendation so she dealt with all of that so everything has been clinically validated and, and we look at psychological distress we look at some risk factors like um social media use and we also look at proactive factors like sleeping and, and um, exercise and stuff like that. so that's really where that became I just wanted us to be proactive and then it was really an internal tool for Jacobs and like like you know like um, we've, we've said previously you know there shouldn't be any IP on safety stuff that looks after people to be honest right so we decided we wanted to to get it out there and get it to our communities and, and our like our families and our clients and 
and just our peers. So that's really how it, how it, how it began, to be honest. I think it's amazing. It's my first time actually hearing of this initiative. And um, I will definitely, um, just as Markham said, to go and, you know, look into it a little bit more. And I think it's very much um, apt in this time as well, particularly in the region that I predominantly operate in as well, in, in Africa. Uh, mental health, it's, a, it's just negative, literally, you know, when you say mental health, it's synonymous with madness and the languages that are used are not very encouraging anyway, um, or welcoming for people to, to want to actually talk about it. So when you're talking about stigma, it's a big deal in, in Africa. And so I'm quite keen, I've just seen, whilst you were talking, I had to quickly snoop. Um, and just read up a little bit as a free tool on there. And I think this would be amazing um, to try and introduce um, into Africa, into Nigeria. Just like Tamara mentioned before, I do, I, I'm a big fan of collaboration and uh, at the moment and human capital as well. So I, I work very closely, um, human capital um, professional body in Nigeria. And I think this would be a very useful tool to actually roll out um, to Nigeria but like I said I will definitely go back look into and definitely reach out as well after after this session just to, to learn a little bit more thank you hey for me thanks and look for anybody else listening you know just um, I think Tamara's put the link in, in the chat but anybody wants to reach out and find out more um, please do so but we've got a good website up and running it's got FAQs it's got um, just got everything you need social media guides it's got everything you need to find out more but you can contact Contact me. What I crucially I'd like to I'd like to say is is that we're finding some interesting data, and I'm going to be releasing a thought leadership paper on it um, start of March, I think, around some of the initial tranche of data. And what we found really is like, which was surprising, is like males are actually more inclined to talk about mental health digitally than perhaps they would talk to a friend. So we've seen almost like a fifty fifty split between male and female. Um, Using the, using the tool. So that was a real a real kind of eye-opener for us. I think if I'll jump in there as well, our approach has been a little bit di different because like with uh, what Fundme said, in many countries in the world, when you start talking about mental health, it's seen as a very negative thing. And you really have to be quite careful of, this is the way we see it, of the kind of wording you use. So we've integrated it for a while in the sense that we have a, a global ergonomic, uh, ergonomic attitude program, as we call it. And that includes things like um, fitness, well-being, me um, mental health, but we call it workload, if you, if you know what I mean. It also includes um, aspects of working from home because we've been working from home within, within L'Oreal now for at least five or six years. There are people who work from home. So what COVID did, uh, for us tomorrow was it it just made us accelerate so instead of it being a few people at home all of a sudden we have 60,000 people working from home and what we did was we, we have a website on economics which includes vitality includes nutrition we upgraded that for working at home and that was accessible to everybody um, we then did a bottom-up approach which I think is important because the people most people are not mental health experts when, when, when you're going down that way, you need real, proper um, psychological uh, support, right? But what you need to be able to do is identify the low-level signals that say there's something going on wrong and that can I do about it? And in, in that sense, it becomes a conversation. So people have a conversation. And we have a training program called Stress, Emotion and Energy, which is for our management and the teams. 
And it's just not to talk about mental health, but we talk about being open, expressing mm. yourself and just having the conversation, which mm. all comes to the same thing, but we don't have it under a program specifically called mental health. It's just our approach, which is working for us at the moment. Yeah. And I, I, like, I like what you're bringing up, especially now, because we are in a real situation where a lot of people are uncertain and there's a lot of ambiguity. You know the word I'm trying? Yeah. Ambiguity. Thank you. I'm dyslexic, so it won't come out right. Um, and that stresses me out. But um, what, my, what I'm trying to say is, is that the, the one thing that I really admire and respect for both of your companies is that you can pivot and provide the resources that essentially thousands and thousands of your employees need. And, mm. and I, I love how you're trailblazers at being able to look ahead and mm. set stuff up. Both of you have spoken about how you've been doing this for years. Mm. It's not because you foresaw that a pandemic was coming, but you probably foresaw something was coming that you needed to provide these supports. So can you share that a little bit, shed some a spotlight on how that thinking was for other listeners, because it's unique. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, to be honest with you, Tamara, it's not about predicting anything, but I think it's all about creating, for us, a great, a great place to work, whereby through people being safe, you're working for the environment, um, you work on ethics, equality, everything, you just create an atmosphere where people really want to work there. And our objective is, is more of to get people that want to work for L'Oreal because mm. they see it aligned with their ethics, their values, etc. But trust me, it's hard work. But what that does mm -hmm. do, it, hel it helps an organization become better at talent retention, okay? Mm -hmm. More resilient as well in, in the sense that people feel more comfortable within the, themselves to come back or to go to do the extra effort. I mean, when COVID came, we went into crisis mode. I mean, the, the occupational health and safety team globally were working 26 hours a day to put everything that they needed to do in place. And they did it because they loved the job and they're passionate, you know, but then they obviously they had to look after themselves and they come back. So I think it's all about creating that kind of the right kind of atmosphere. The problem we have though, is it's fine for Jacobs, it's fine for L'Oreal, the big organizations with the, you know, with that have been around a long time that are solid. But when you look at the SMEs and the smaller organization, the equation is totally different. Some of them don't even have occupational health and safety professionals. So I think so from my point of view, I think we were just lucky we're capable to work on that because we wanted to be about, you know, want to do the right things from an ethical point of view, from a, uh, from a trust point of view, uh, talent retention, et cetera. So it comes naturally and organically in my opinion. But, but you know, like for, for me, um, this is easy. I need to do something every single day that gets me out of my bed and excited. Right. So my, 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 the strategy we have in Jacobs for our HSE strategy is creating excellence together, mm -hmm. you know. So from there, we drive certain initiatives and programs and processes and procedures that actually creates that excellence and it gets people excited. And I am so like so lucky that I've got a really diverse team. You know, we're probably 50-50 male, male, female, right? And my leadership team. And that diversity of thought is just drives us all. We kind of 
towards that line and we've all got a common a common kind of vision mm-hmm. like we want to be the best we want to be the best so as, as, as Malcolm says I think the HSE teams across there across the world are the hardest working the most compassionate the most passionate people that are in any other function or any other any other kind of job role and and I think we all do it for a reason and I think that's why I think we all come together through things like this because we're attracted to that that's a good point. Funny, how do you see it in Africa with the, the smaller companies and you know mental health and dealing with COVID and all the rest of it? It's actually not even just the SME. I think even with the bigger corporations as well. And I was just going to say, as you both were talking, as, as Tamara also mentioned, that you know what led you both, you know, to kind of lean towards this direction um, from many years ago. And I think it's it's worth commending and highlighting as well for many um, aspiring professionals or even existing professionals as well that within the OSH space or being an OSH professional, it's beyond. Uh, it requires you to be forward thinking and dynamic as well you know and that's exactly what you guys have done looking back many years and even as we are today as well um health and safety when i think in africa anyway i'm not sure in the uk but in africa generally speaking safety is quite linked heavily linked to security it's very physical based as opposed to just like you mentioned oc health even with oc health as well in the uk i, I actually lead um health and safety for a very uh, the largest um, animal welfare organization here in the UK presently and you'd be surprised as well that when you're talking about OC health it focuses a lot on the physical side of it physical fitness and all of that not even the well-being the mental side of it and so I think that there's a need for a narrative change and I'm hoping this conversation we're having today would be able to steer that narrative change home which is UK and of course abroad as well so yeah so one of the things we are doing is the live and direct one percent conference that's coming up April the 28th and the the spirit of this is to do marginal gains towards um, making our workplaces and lives essentially one percent safer so I wanted to try to open that up and how do you think um, other people could be doing this or how have you done this yourself in your own experiences that you could share? I'll go first. I'll go first. I mean, the, the first off, Tamara, I think I just want to talk, if, I don't, if you don't mind, a bit about the background and everything. I mean, obviously, 1% Safer was set up by Andrew Sharman initially where he, decided, he thought it would be pretty cool to get some thought leaders in the influences in the world of health and safety to actually... Uh, put their thoughts together, whatever they wanted. And I remember I got an email from him saying, Malcolm, I'm thinking about putting together a book. Would you like to write something like 50 or 60 um, 60 pages, uh, 50 or 60 uh, lines or something like that, a few hundred words? And anything you want, anything you think that you want to give to other people. So what what I actually did there was I wrote something and I thought it was pretty good. And he said, no, it's not quite good enough. Uh, We want something that's more more focused on leadership and not for the OSH professional themselves, but more for the line managers, et cetera. So I ended up saying, based on my experience of working for 30 years in occupational health and safety, if I was a senior leader, what would I want to do in order to, and how would I make sure that I got the best people around me that would help me drive health and safety within my organization? And then I linked it all in the end to, uh, to, the, to the hummingbird, but that's, a, that's another story for, uh, for, for, another, for another time. And since then, I said to Andrew, I sent, I sent him a note saying, look, I think this is great, 
selling the book, all the all the profits going to uh, to the foundation that that you've created, but don't think like that. Dream, dream the vision. And why don't mm-hmm. you create a foundation that's going to last for a long time? We can make a real impact on health and safety of people and really help them. And at that moment in time, he said, well, he was having the same idea and he asked me to join the board. So I joined, I joined the board of trustees. So I'm now working in, in, in that area. But I think it's absolutely fantastic. And the, the event that we're going to have on the 28th of April, which is bringing some real interesting thought leaders together, talking about some really, really topical subjects, I think is just going to be absolutely awesome. And I can't wait for it, to be honest with you. And that's not just a sales pitch. I truly believe it. I think it's going to be a great day. I think the title is is brilliant. Um, you know, if you can just imagine that, if you can just imagine that we get everybody working one percent safer, you know, the the impact on our communities, the contribution that we'd make to our communities, people's health. I just think it's a phenomenal, a phenomenal concept. And and you know, reading the book, the um, Dave Brailsford book around like the, the sky cycling team and the marginal gains. I'm like, why wouldn't you? You know, it doesn't need to be about evolution. You know, it's, it's, it's about evolution and not kind of revolution. You know, those 1% margins that we can gain, I think, will have a massive impact. So I, whoever thought that up, I think that's amazing. I think it's good. And if I can, it's, um, it's all about, I don't know if you, if you both were, if you're all aware, but according to the ILO, the, the recent report was in 2017, but there's 2.78 million people die per year because of work-related accidents or work-related illnesses. That's every single year. If you take COVID, we're around about 2 million, and it's going to be hopefully a one-off. Now, with the vaccinations, it's going to be different. Yet, we don't seem to really make headways into that, and very often it's because it doesn't touch everybody. It's not, you know, it's always to somebody else, etc. So I think behind this all, if we can make the world 1% safer, then we can save a lot of people and a lot of people's lives. And it's just trying to get more people on board. Like, like you said, it's marginal gains. But the more we can, uh, we can get people doing this and trying to make a difference, the better it's going to be. It, it is indeed, uh, Markham. And um, it sort of blew my mind when I listened to the uh, podcast of um, Andrew. I think it was a Monday. And I, I posted on, on social media saying I had to listen to it like two or three times. It was that good and quite insightful. And I, it just kind of shocked me thinking, wow. Um, and then it, it triggered me to go and figure out how many of this terms of context. So pardon me, I'm always going to draw things back to Africa, especially if we are talking about, you know, marginal gains and making difference, you know, whether one conversation at a time or 1% at a time or what have you. And I, I'm just going to take it back to Africa. And I thought, hang on a minute, let me look at what the numbers look like for Africa. And from research, what I what came up was that 20% of this 2.78 million you know, is from sub-Saharan Africa. And I thought, well, I better do some numbers because again, Andrew did some numbers, he crunched it down. So, so it was so simplified and hit home differently saying it's six, uh, 7,616 deaths per day. That is gobsmacking, you know? And then I, again, African context, that worked out to be 1,523 per day, 63 per second, which for me, I thought that was an absolute fib. Reason being is because there's so much unaccounted, we have a poor reporting system in Africa. So that wasn't even a true picture. One life is bad enough. 63 lives per second is bad enough. But to know that that's actually not the number, which could be significantly higher than that, 
is even heartbreaking. And so when I heard about the whole 1% um, safer, I said, you know what, this is a, a wagon that I want to jump on. I'm doing quite a lot in Africa and I think Africa can benefit significantly from this. And of course, research as well showed um, ILO and WHO went into a collaboration together to try and help change this um, this narrative in Africa. And, and I think that was in 2003, there was an agreement that they went into. And until date, it's, it's still shocking to see the numbers. And this was to help um, countries in Africa to have their own, um, you know, their, their own framework, regulatory framework when it comes to OSH, because all of these things got to start from leaders, you know, and I'm sure at some point, um, Samara, you would probably ask along the lines of what tools can we say, but so many things um, sort of hinges on the seven golden rules. When I heard, um, I think it was, it was Ben, if I could pronounce it properly, um, yeah. you know, who talked around the seven golden rules for hero. And these are like real tools. That I'm sure when you do lead on to that i'll build on a little bit more but um going back to these numbers and the concept of one percent safer i think africa primarily would benefit significantly from this um in a in a very vast way hey, yes. uh, can i come in just for a second there um you know thank you for that those numbers are are, are staggering I, I i and throughout my career you know we've worked in africa and previous organizations worked in africa before and I can count, you know, across both hands, me standing up at a meeting and, and trying to justify why we work in Africa as an example because of the poor safety standards. And for me, I was always gobsmacked by receiving that question because why are we not going and help as an organisation? Why are more organisations not piling in and, and, and helping with that? And, and I could justify it easily but I, always, I was always astounded to get the question, how can we justify working in X country because of X's record? Mm. I think that's a good point as well. And I think, if I can, I think there are two ways to attack this. It's one through the governments and them trying to do things, but sometimes it's quite slow to get done. But I think, Paul, what you indicated, as the larger organisations that rely a lot, say, for example, in Africa and other countries as well for raw materials, etc., I think it's absolutely critical that we drive it as well because, because I think we have more of an impact and we can have an impact quicker. And that's a little bit what's been done with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. That they try and influence countries, etc., but a lot of their influence that they're driving in, in the environmental sustainability Ability area is through corporations, and I think it needs to be attacked in the, in, the, in in the two dimensions, and will save lives. Oh. So I don't know whether that resonates with you at all. Uh, from me, I, I totally agree, and I think. That... Okay, now I was just going to say this is one of the driving force behind the setup of Soshi because we know that when together, particularly women coming together and joining hands with corporate organizations, we definitely make the difference and be the difference we want to see, essentially. So yeah, mm -hmm. I just, that was just a buttress what Markham raised. So it's a little bit like the idea, if I understand right for me, that you've almost got to attack this kind of prob problem from all different angles. You know, there's the country angle, there's the coming in from the corporations, but also with the environmental health and safety professionals. At the end of the day, like, like everybody said, the, these figures are absolutely incredible. And you know, um, COVID, 
going back to COVID, how many billions have we spent on COVID? Mm. How many billions have we spent to turn around and say, we've got to put people at home. We've made 240 million people redundant, right? And to save lives, it's a good thing to do. Yet we're quite happy for 2.78 million people to die every year from working. It just doesn't equate for me. And there's something wrong on that equation. Absolutely. I don't know, Paul, whether you see it the same or totally different. No, I do. I think, look, one life's too many. Like, you know, these are these are massive numbers, but one life is, is too many. And if, if you have had the experience of, of talking to a family that's lost a loved one, you will totally understand that. You know, and I think that's why as an, as an HSE group, we're all we're all passionate about it. You know, we're not... We're not bleeding hearts, but we know that we can make an actual difference. And and we go back and you're talking about Africa and, and, and India and, and places like that, you know, the kind of developing countries. For me, that's where I can add a lot of value. They, they have been my best business trips in my career. Those are the ones that I look back most fondly. That's the ones I realise I've made an actual difference. And also the people have been thankful for my help. Well, definitely, I guess I need to, um, you know, perk you, Paul, after this meeting <laughs> and see how we could see um, what possibilities are there to, to work with Sochi and make the impact you'd like to see as well. Oh, I would love to do that. You know, I think when I look, I'll be honest, you know, I was, I was saying this to Malcolm. Malcolm and I have a, have a catch up every every couple of weeks. And I'll be honest, I've so only the last 18 months I've actually networked outside my organisation because I've been too internally focused. I'm learning mm. a heap load by being externally focused. Malcolm's educated me in human capital over the last few months. Makes absolute sense. Now, I agreed mm. with it all before I met Malcolm, but put it in the context of human capital, makes absolute sense. So I would encourage people and I've encouraged my teams to like go and network externally. Mm-hmm. It's very valuable. I wanted to, to drive into a little bit about what recommendations we could be giving um, health and safety professionals who are listening, as well as operational managers, to bring the concept of the 1% safer to their sites and engage, get their workers engaged in this. What would you recommend for that? Because I know when I was in retail, I would do marginal gains with the employees and it was a mind, it changed their minds about how they looked at health and safety. Right, I would probably say, um, honestly, when I was listening to Sven, and I, I couldn't but take notes, right? And um, I really kind of want to link it back to the seven golden rules. And I think individuals, organizations can benefit significantly from the seven golden rules. And we translate it in diverse ways, um, both you know theoretically and practically. And so the two main points actually that I would recommend off the back of that would be, um, and is hinged on um, the rule seven and rule three. You know, rule three talks about defining targets and developing programs um, to obviously make a difference that we want to see and promote the advocacy that we would like to see. But seven says invest in people and, you know, which motivates participation. You can't develop programs if you don't have the right competency, you don't have the right exposure, you don't have the right skill set, you don't, you know, you don't have the right um, resource. And so for me, I would say for organizations, um, us professionals, you know, invest in yourself or invest in people um, so that they can be a part of this change. If we really want to see any programs 
that would transform and yield the 1% safer that we want to see. That's good. Um, for me, just for just because a lot, a lot of people you're quoting um, two of the, um, the, the seven principles from the Vision Zero um, initiative. Maybe you can go through and just describe a bit about the vision because it ties into what Sven wrote on uh, what is Vision Zero and a little bit. Do you have the seven um, sort of um, golden rules in front of you? Yeah, I've got the seven golden rules. Um, in front of me. Maybe for the benefit of the people that are listening, just tell them a bit about Vision Zero and what the seven rules are, because it is quite good. And then it put, brings it into context, what you've just said. Yeah, uh, thanks for that, Malcolm. So I, I would try, I know, just not to bore those who've actually watched Sven's, um, you know, <laughs> session or, you know, on, on Monday, I would try and paraphrase as much as I can. Um, however, basically, it was the concept was from the fact that Vision well, not vision, target zero, which we all know that we can't, in our profession, there isn't nothing called a zero target. We can only be, as, you know, we can only aspire, we can only wish and, you know, work towards it. And so in, in, in turn, it's been converted to vision zero. So with the, with the mindset that would like to see a zero fatality, zero injuries in the workplace, there are some, you know, principles that we can build on to help us achieve this, vision essentially and so there are seven golden rules um i'm just conscious of time as well so i can allow other people to talk and there are seven golden rules that hinges on um that or principles pardon me that that we can build on and that's taking leadership and that that's number one number one is leadership involvement and you know we've got to see things we would get bottleneck if we ever tried bottom up there's nothing wrong with bottom up but it's always best you know, best results or best, best outcome when we try top down. And, and that's what gold, this golden rule is driving that saying leaders have got to be involved. And of course, leadership as well. I, again, I took notes. You could tell that I've watched this video over and over and again. Um, leadership is, is, is a behavior in, in the words of Andrew. It's, it's not a title, right? It's a behavior. And so anybody could be a leader and everybody is a leader. And the second one is identifying hazards. You know, again, controlling risk in the workplace, coming up with strategies on managing that, and then defining targets, developing programs to help us to mitigate or to, to reduce um, our risk in the workplace. And of course, ensure a safe and health system, meaning that we've got to be organized, you know, strategically, we've got to be organized, operationally, we've got to be organized, um, ensure safety and health of machines, equipment, and the workplace at large. Um, so it's beyond just the people now, but of course the environment, the tools that we need and we will be using, we've got to pay cognizance to that as well. And then of course, improving qualifications, which is a big part that I'm quite passionate about. Um, you know, developing competency. If we are going to see any changes, we've got to build capacity. And that's what number six is all around. And of course, investing in people to be a part of this drive, you know, this crusade, like I call it, essentially. So those are the seven golden rules for those um, who, who are watching and listening for the first time. Thank you. But imagine, Paul, it's no different than what you and I have in our organisations at a macro level. Yeah, yeah. Um... I can't remember the seven of them, right? But um, <laughs> but but those that jumped out at me were, you know, investing in our people. You know, Malcolm and I have spoke. I think we've both got an internal mentoring program for our HSE staff because we want to increase their competence, not only their technical skills, but actually their soft skills. And I totally agree with me with the whole leadership piece. Um, leaders need to be aware of the shadow that they cast. Mm -hmm. Right. They, they need to walk the walk. 
they need to ins- they need to know that eyes are on them at all times and people boss watch. So if people see the boss doing something, they think, well, that's acceptable. He's a, they're the boss. I'm going to do the same. And just the the other thing I would add, I would add about the marginal gains, just or about the the one percent safer, just by looking at the time, right? Um, I just want people to have their eyes and ears open. Listen, listen to you know, try and pick up the vibes of what it's really like. Um, you know, find out what the morale is like in the organisation. For me, morale is massive. I know for a fact when when I was in the field. I was in construction before I was in safety. And when I was in the field, if my morale was poor, I took that into every single task and activity I did. So that's really, really important that we need to look after our workforce out there, make sure that they've got the best conditions to work in, make sure they've got the best canteens, make sure they've got the best car parks. There's nothing worse than actually getting into your work with your morale low. So I think if I was thinking about the same things, because I mean, I, easy to say all of the above, right? Everything that's already been said. Um, but if I was saying to somebody that was coming into the profession for the first time, if it was a company whereby there is a lot of risk, I would go back to risk management and say the first thing is to make sure that people don't leave your site in a coffin. So make sure you identify all those areas whereby you can kill somebody you can have a fatal accident in your site and make sure it's under control, working with people, whatever the risk assessment process is. So I say, that's the first thing. I think it's good. One of the things that I think we've done historically in health and safety, we've, we've added things like a layer of an onion. And we're adding more and more onto a small number of people at site level that are overloaded right? Mental health problem of the, of the occupational health and safety profession, maybe. But going back to resetting this kind of thing is just make sure people are not going to get killed. You know, they're not going to have an irreversible accident. And if you're further down the road, and I'm a great believer that an organization is on a journey, as is an individual, and we use a variation of the DuPont-Bradley curve that we've internalized, and from reactive to interdependent. And I think that could be an organization, and it can be an individual on their own personal journey. And I think it's important for an OSH professional to find out where the company is. Because you don't talk about advanced programs if your risk assessment programs aren't very well. So I think you've got to really understand where you are, who you are, and, and identify the right tool at the right time to take you to the next step forward. And the first thing for me, make, make sure you know where you can kill somebody and make sure it's under control. Yeah. Uh, just to add on to that very quickly, uh, Malcolm, as well, is you've talked about the individual knowing where they are. You've talked about the corporate or the organisation knowing where they are. I think also country levels got to know what where they are as well. You know, some of the countries in Africa barely have a, a, a model, you know, a health and safety framework or OSH framework at all. So hopefully we can achieve this 1% um, through that ang- angle as well. I think so. And and I think it's complicated because they were saying that we have individual cultures and we're on a journey. We have corporate culture, business culture. We have country culture. I mean, this, what our Rosh professionals, we expect them to manage or bring in them with the leadership together is very, very complex. And going back to what you said, Paul, I mean, if you talk about finance, you talk about HR, it's much more linear. I mean, Mm Uh, we're re- we have always worked in uh, to what a term that, you know, I think you all know, you know, a, v- a VUCA world. Our mm-hmm. world is VUCA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it always has been. 
yeah. yet we turn it into something positive and we try and deal with it. But uh, yeah, uh, so but I, I just think it's, it's great what we're doing, but it's a very complex thing we're doing. So, but I, going back to it, don't make sure you know how you can kill somebody at work, have the have faith likes and make sure it's under control. And I think it goes back to, to what you were talking about uh, previously about human capital and really observing that, you know, you have a lot of stakeholders in the workplace, in the organization that want to be working in a safe environment, a healthy environment. They want to be proud where they work. And I always found that being on site, my biggest asset were the employees doing the jobs and trusting them to be competent adults and working with them and sharing resources. So what are your thoughts around leveraging that as well? I can go first on that one very quickly. I, I think it's, it's vital. Um, but on the other hand, I, don't, I think you, you need to remember that people are designed to fail. They're designed to make mistakes because that's how we learn. Ever since we're babies, whatever, we learn that way. So no matter what systems you put in place, eventually people will or will not fail. So you have to try and com compensate to address that as well. And that's why I'm not a big fan, to be honest with you, of actually you know, saying take away the rules, we trust people to do the right thing because we all trust people. If we took away the speed limits in all our countries and said we trust you to keep the speed limit, just think what would happen. So... I, I think we've got to include people because they know their work, they know the jobs, they know the shortcuts they take to do it. That we've, we've written the procedure, but they say, well, that's not exactly the way we do it because we do it this way. And sometimes it's because they're under time pressure or whatever. So I think it's important to include them. You can't not include them. But in a large organization, maybe like Jacobs and L'Oreal, you need to have confidence that the local occupational health and safety people will actually do their job and, and do it correctly. All we can do is create the atmosphere, the culture for it to happen. Yeah, I would agree with everything you said there, you know, but it's, it's not only about the occupational health and safety people. It's about all the operations that are out there as well. And, you know, and we are, we are designed to fail, right? And that's why we need to be looking out for each other. Because when I'm failing... I want one of you guys to be saying to me, hey, Paul, you know, you're, you're taking a shortcut there because we're all designed to take shortcuts. We, we want to be as efficient as we can. I am lazy as hell, right? So I am going to try and do stuff the quickest and the less effort as I possibly can. Sometimes that leads me into a bad situation. And and I just need someone to say, hey, Paul, that's not right. You're going to, this is going to happen to you if you do that. It, it, it comes back to... Um... What, what, what we call heuristics. It's the way we're wired together, wired to fail, wired to take action or not. And one of the speakers that we've got on the conference, Philip Delkey, is an expert in that. I mean, he, when it comes to heuristics and why people do what they do, why they take these kind of actions, why they're kept wired as they are. Um, and it's a fascinating part. It's not neuroscience, okay? It, it's something different. It's like herd theory. If you've heard of, you know, group theory about the pressure of the group, the pressure to be macho, the fact that sometimes inaction is, even though it's an action, not doing anything, it's a decision, it's easier for people than taking action. And the nudge theory comes into, in, into that as well. So, uh, and he's speaking on the 20th, the 28th of April, and this guy is absolutely amazing. And it's thought-provoking. It's really a thought leadership. It's good stuff, which ties that all together. So, What, what I would love to see as well, 
or a conference actually is to touch on the informal sector because so far we've sort of talked a lot on the formal um, sector you know in corporates organization we have a lot of problems a majority of these particularly anyway in Africa where we see a lot of these problems is in the informal sector so the question then begs how do we also close this gap as well so it'd be nice you know in, in put to put this in perspective of we begin to talk about one percent safer to not forget that sector because they actually make a big um, big proportion of this numbers that we're talking about we're trying to reduce i'm going to ask you the question what do you mean by informal so informal sector in terms of like the blue collar, so to say, not the white collar um, kind of guys. You've got the, again, if I could, sorry, I keep referring back to Africa. We've got the guys um, in the marketplace. We've got the guys um, who are mechanics and not necessarily in a corporate setting as it were, or registered, mm. organized. These are like working informally i mean I, I think that's the best way i could sort of put it um where they're not white collar jobs or white yeah. collar people c-suite as it were but mainly um unconventional you know market people things like that frontline okay. workers like when i was in retail you know i'd have my deli workers i'd have the cashiers those individuals and although they they don't set up the health and safety system one thing that was very critical was sitting down and understanding their job and what are the dangers they've found when they've been doing the job for say 20, 30 years. And then taking that knowledge and working it in. Because I, I noticed that some things were actually being missed because they didn't understand what the day, the actual day was for the worker. And I think just to add on to that, sorry, uh, Malcolm, again, just, you know, in light of what you've asked, would be people like miners, you know, we have a lot of informal mining as well in Africa, you know, factory workers, manufacturers, all of these kind of roles where um, they're not office-based or big corporation, um, kind of one-man kind of job, but then there's a lot of these one-man kind of, one kind of job out there that forms corporations, mini corporations, yeah, so it would be those kind of people. So I'm going to wrap up because we are one minute too. So I want to say thank you very much for joining us. I greatly appreciate you all coming and joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you so pleasure. much. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. Take care. Bye. Take care. I hope you found this conversation interesting and that you'll join us again on Safety Talks. If you haven't yet, please go to the link below and register for our live and direct conference happening April 28th, 2021. If you'd like to learn more about 1% Safer, please navigate to 1percentsafer.com and you can find out about the book as well as share your 1% Safer idea with us there. Are you looking for more safety resources to share out with your network and teams? Head on over to saferpedia.com where we're updating our safety content daily. Until next time, stay safe.